Good morning and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Just to let you know about our major ex one of our major exhibitions this weekend, we're celebrating the opening of the exhibition The Art and Whimsy of Mo Willems, which features the children's author authors New York-inspired characters. And I can tell you, we had what a crowd of children we had yesterday. They were so adorable, and we expect families to be coming now through the summer. Uh, Mo Willems was here for a, a reading and book signing, and I, I have to say it was quite a thrill, along with, I, I don't even know, the, the elephant and piglet or whatever, the people dressed up. Piggy, I mean, it was a great day, and, and he will be doing this again, another reading and book signing June 4th. So if you know families, or if you have families, children, grandchildren who would be interested, let them know. Pick up a brochure as you leave today. And I always ask how many members, how many people are members with us today? A lot of people. So we, we want, first we want to thank you for being members. You're Membership, it plays an invaluable role in supporting all our programs, and we want to invite those of you who are not yet members to join the family. There's wonderful benefits. Again, the brochures, staff are out there to sign you up. Today's program, Churchill, Roosevelt, Stalin, and the Making of the Grand Alliance is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, which is the heart of our public programs, and as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to thank Glenn Louie, uh, one of our wonderful board members, and all the wonder, we have a great group of Chairman's Council members with us today. Let's give them all a big hand for all their support. The program today will last an hour and a half. It includes a nice long question and answer session, so think about your questions as you're listening to the talk. There'll be no formal book signing following the program, and I, at this time I'd also like to ask you to turn off cell phones, beepers, and just know there's no flash photography permitted. I'd now like to welcome Alan Luxemburg, the president of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, who will be introducing today's speaker. Based in Philadelphia, the Foreign Policy Research Institute's mission is to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the development of policies that advance U.S. national interests. The Institute has been ranked as the number one think tank in the country with a budget of under five million. And now, please join me in welcoming Alan Luxemburg. Thank you. Well, I'd like to join Dale in welcoming you on behalf of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. It's great to be back at the New York Historical Society for what is the first of a three-part lecture series uh, featuring some of the scholars of the Foreign Policy Research Institute. On April 2nd, we will be back with uh, Jeremy Black speaking about Eisenhower and the Cold War. He is a distinguished British military and diplomatic historian, author of over 100 books. And then in May, we'll be hosting uh, Paul Springer, 
uh, talking about uh, technology from the perspective of military history. He, uh, if he weren't a historian, he would be a comedian. So I urge you uh, to join us for that as well. Anyway, as Dale said, uh, the Institute uh, is based in Philadelphia. It was founded in 1955 on the premise that a nation should think before it acts. It was good advice then. It's good advice still uh, today. Uh, as she said, we're, our mission is to bring the insights of scholarship to bear on the foreign policy challenges uh, facing the, war, uh, the United States today. And our method is to look at these issues through the geopolitical perspective, which is to say to look at contemporary issues through the lens of history, geography, and culture. Or as my colleague James, Kurt, James uh, Kurth likes to say, we study the realities of the mentalities of the localities. We, as a critical part of our mission, is to educate the American public and to provide the professional development for high school teachers in the area of world history and international relations. And through our publications and podcasts, we reach hundreds of thousands of people virtually in virtually every country nearly every day. So I uh, invite you to pick up one of our brochures in the table outside the auditorium. Now it's a pleasure to introduce to you my friend and colleague, John Maurer, who is the Alfred Thayer Mahan Professor of Sea Power and Grand Strategy at the U.S. Naval War College, where he, taught, where he has taught for the last 25 or more years. He was chair of their strategy department for eight of those years. He's the recipient of the Navy's uh, Civilian Meritorious Award. He sat on the uh, Navy Secretary's Advisory Committee on Naval History. He got his PhD uh, from Fletcher School of Public of Law and Diplomacy. Uh, he goes, he's been affiliated with uh, FPRI since the 1970s when he was a pre-doctoral fellow and rose to become editor of our journal Orbis. Uh, so we take uh, pride in all of his accomplishments but being a, a nonprofit, we also take credit for all of those accomplishments. <laughs> anyway, uh, he's here to talk about 1941. Uh, please welcome Dr. John Maurer. Thank you, Alan. Seventy-five years ago, this is an important year in world history. It is a turning point, referred to by Churchill as the hinge of fate, an important turning point in the history of the Second World War. And to think back 75 years, what I want to do this morning is highlight some of the great events of that year and look at particular at the leaders and the strategic decisions, the big decisions that they had to make at that time. I want to highlight for you that while we look back and we see the history, they were making the history. They didn't know the outcome of some of the decisions, the choices that they were making. So keep that in mind as I talk this morning, because it's easier for us to look back and say, it had to turn out that way. Well, we know that it need not have gone the way that it did. We can imagine if it had not been for these great leaders, 
there could have been different outcomes, different outcomes more sinister and ugly than what actually occurred. And so when we look back 75 years, we think of the leaders of that time. And in particular, we think about Roosevelt and Churchill, these two great leaders of Britain and the United States at a crucial moment in world history. What decisions did they have to make? Well, when we look back on this time, of course, uh, they're so memorable, these leaders. They're so dramatic, and they're caught up in a history that is really a tragedy. So when we look back, we, we remember them so well. In fact, so much that even in our own presidential campaigns today, when we feel the burn, uh, their names immediately pop into the minds of our candidates. At a recent debate between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, they were asked, uh, you know, name two leaders, one American and one foreign, that influenced their decisions on foreign policy. Look to the past. And Bernie Sanders said, FDR and Churchill. Churchill. Imagine this, an American socialist lauding, <laughs> lauding a British Tory. Boy, I, I can imagine that Churchill, who always in his political career uh, would attack the socialists, as he would call them, uh, I can imagine there must be a twinkle in his eye to think that an American socialist is lauding him. Now, why? Well, this is what Bernie Sanders had to say. Nobody can deny that as a wartime leader, Churchill rallied the British people against what? The Nazi juggernaut, and eventually on to an extraordinary victory. It's hard to disagree with this assessment. And indeed, that's why we remember Roosevelt and Churchill uh, to this day, because of the times of testing that they went through and the decisions that they made. Well, 1940, the year before, and the winter of 40-41 was certainly a time of testing for Britain. Look at this iconic photograph of London being bombed near St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, the damage that was being done to the city of London and other urban areas in Britain at that time. In May of 41, the House of Commons, destroyed by German bombing. During the winter, fall and winter of 40-41, over 30,000, 30,000 British non-combatants, civilians, were killed in German bombing. Now, we can relate to this after the September 11th attack. Again, imagine that when measured in loss of life. It's the equivalent of 10 September 11th attacks being inflicted upon Britain during that time. Britain, though, stood up to Hitler, was able to beat back the German Air Force in the Battle of Britain. And hence, Britain was able to provide the foundation for a grand alliance that would eventually coalesce against Hitler and destroy the Nazi regime. Now, here he is for his heroic role, Man of the Year. And in the background, what do you see on this Time magazine cover? You see American destroyers. Because part of 1940 was the, a deal that was made between the United States and Britain that the United States would provide old destroyers of World War I vintage to Britain in return for bases in the British Empire in the Western Hemisphere. And so what's highlighted here is not just Churchill, the heroic figure of 1940, but also American assistance coming to Britain's aid during 1940, before the United States is in the war. Churchill, when he 
decided that Britain should fight on and rallied the British people to fight on in 1940. It's often seen as being an emotional decision, that his hatred of Nazism is what drove him. Well, that is true. But also, Churchill went to his military chiefs, the British chiefs of staff, the top military leaders, and said, what are our chances of fighting on against Nazi Germany? And this is the assessment, one of the assessments provided by the British chiefs. And it highlighted something, that Britain will not be able to defeat Nazi Germany without, and it's highlighted there in italics and also in the uh, original document, without the support of the United States, Britain would have no chance of success in defeating Nazi Germany without the help of the United States. So it's clear to British decision makers, British leaders in 1940, as they're fighting on against Nazi Germany, that they have no chance of holding on, of being able to defeat Nazi Germany without the United States. There has to be a coalition. The United States is key. The United States is key. I want to emphasize that in the defeat of Nazi Germany in the minds of British leaders. Well, fortunately, President Roosevelt was there. He shared their views. He understood that the defeat of Nazi Germany was going to require, was going to require American assistance. Now, Churchill in the 1930s was a journalist. Out of government, he wrote newspaper articles and books. In fact, he might well have been the highest paid British journalist writing on uh, world affairs. And one of the articles he penned during the 1930s was about FDR. And this is what he had to say about Roosevelt. That already before the Second World War, because of Roosevelt's response to the Great Depression, that he would go down as one of the greatest, greatest of men ever to occupy the office of the presidency. Again, this is from the 1930s. He went on in that article to say, well, why is that? Well, because of Roosevelt's generous sympathy for the underdog. Well, in 1940, Britain was certainly the underdog. Now, Churchill here is writing about the New Deal, the response to the Depression. But this could also uh, apply, when you think of it, to Britain's plight predicament in 1940. And again, an approach to social justice that places him high among those who are great philanthropists. Churchill went on to say, what else did Roosevelt have that in characteristic that makes him a great leader? Well, this is a, a wonderful tribute. Composure. Again, in times of crisis, to be composed, to not lose one's head, and combined with activity. Again, this sets him apart. So Churchill already in the 1930s, before the Second World War, understands that Roosevelt is a great leader one that the United States has that can be a partner with Britain in wartime. Well, let's look at the geopolitical, the geostrategic situation that faces the United States at the beginning of 1941. Well, here's one way of looking at the globe. And this comes from Fortune magazine. Uh, the great geographer Richard Eads Harrison put together these wonderful maps, if you Google it, uh, you'll find these wonderful maps, again, to help educate the American public about the geography of the Second World War. And here's one of them, a polar projection. Now, what did Roosevelt face in the way of challenges? Well, first of all, from Nazi Germany, that's on a roll in Europe, 
having defeated France in the spring of 1940. This is a major upset. Europe, continental Europe, is under the Nazi yoke. This is very dangerous. No one had thought that France would be defeated so quickly in the spring of 1940. It was thought that there would be a replay of the First World War, the Western Front trenches, stalemate. But instead, Germany won a quick victory. Also victories in the north in Scandinavia. So Hitler has Europe under its control, continental Europe. Britain's holding out. In the North Atlantic, you have the Battle of the Atlantic, what Churchill called the Battle of the Atlantic, a desperate struggle being fought. Britain depends heavily upon being able to get supplies from the rest of the world that have to traverse the North Atlantic to get to the United Kingdom. Uh, German submarines are there trying to interdict, interrupt that. This is a battle that Britain and the United States cannot afford to lose. All of Anglo-American grand strategy depends upon winning the Battle of the Atlantic. Those supplies, the movement of troops that are required to defeat Nazi Germany have to go across the Atlantic. It's essential that the Battle of the Atlantic be won. There was also a fear among American decision makers that the regime, the Vichy regime, the pro-Nazi regime in France, which had a big colonial empire in Africa, that Germany might be able to work with Vichy France to strike toward the Western Hemisphere, going from North Africa over to Brazil and the Caribbean. So this is one threat that Roosevelt's planners and Roosevelt sees to the United States. He has to keep open that vital North Atlantic sea lane and also fearful of what might happen if Britain falls in defending the Western Hemisphere against Germany. Meanwhile, in Asia, Japan is also a growing threat. Since 1937, Japan has been involved in a major war with China. Before Pearl Harbor, four years before Pearl Harbor, Japan is already engaged in a major war in Asia. These two Asian giants, China and Japan, are fighting each other. Uh, the Chinese are being beaten in almost every battle, and yet they don't give up under nationalist leader Chiang Kai-shek. They continue to fight on, despite defeats. Uh, this is a story we remember Churchill and Britain fighting on, despite defeats. We should also remember what is key for the victory in the Second World War as well, is that a great many of the Japanese resources and troops are tied down in a protracted fight in China from 1937 down to the end of the war in 1945. Well, after the fall of France, with Britain standing alone against Nazi Germany, there's the danger that Japan might expand into Southeast Asia, attacking the British Empire in Southeast Asia, also maybe going in the Indian Ocean toward India, and what if Japan attacks toward the Soviet Union, out of Manchuria into Siberia? So there's a great danger here as well that Roosevelt and his planners see, that you have two wars, one in Europe, one in Asia. Neither of them is going well for the side that the United States is supporting, Britain and China. The wars are stalemated, but both Britain and China are in dangerous straits. How do you support them? Well, here's the chief of naval operations at the time, the top uniform naval leader in the United States, Admiral Harold, or his nickname was Betty, Betty Stark. 
And uh, Betty Stark was a graduate of the Naval War College, by the way, where I, where I teach, uh, class of 1923. Uh, uh, so he uh, studied at the War College, and from that study, well, he became a good strategist. Uh, actually, he's a, a, just a bright man in his own right. Well, uh, um, he put together um, strategic appreciation assessment for Franklin D. Roosevelt at the end of 1940. And here it is. And first page of it. And what he did, he laid out different courses of action, COAs, for the United States. And he said there were four. There were four basic courses of action for the president, for the United States, to make a decision. Uh, what are those four courses? Well, one is hemispheric defense. You marshal American resources to defend the Western Hemisphere. You give very little in the way of aid to China or to Britain. Hunker down, get ready. The Germans and the Japanese are likely to win in those theaters. Hunker down and protect yourself in the Western Hemisphere. The other is, well, Japan is the threat. Let's undertake offensive, more aggressive operations in the Pacific and be on the defensive in the Atlantic. The other is, well, let's go both Atlantic and Pacific. And the final is offensive in the Atlantic that Germany's the main threat and fight on the defensive in the Pacific. These are the four options. Plan D there is uh, basically Germany first. Germany is the greatest threat, so therefore the United States should think about how do we marshal our resources to deal with that German threat. And so this became known as Plan Dog, because it's D. Uh, Plan Dog. Offensive in the Atlantic, Germany first. Uh, President Roosevelt looks at this and says, yeah, this, this makes the most sense to me. We should avoid war with Japan, try to deter Japan, and marshal our resources for a coming conflict with Nazi Germany in Europe. As part of this, Roosevelt supports legislation that has passed in March of 1941 for Lend-Lease, and that is to provide arms and supplies to the British, to be able to give it to them rather than having them pay now. Britain faced a financial crisis, hard currency of dollars, not being able to buy things in the American market. Well, what Roosevelt is saying is that the United States, by supporting Britain, is supporting democracy around the world, and that the United States should be the great arsenal of democracy, and that this crisis that the United States is facing, even though we're not at war yet, is as serious as war itself. Now, notice here, Roosevelt does not say that the United States is going to be the foot soldiers of democracy. Again, it is to provide supplies and arms to others who are fighting. Again, this is one reason why it is able to pass through the Congress, because the Congress says, yes, as long as we're not committed to fight, we're willing to help others fight to protect the United States. Uh, Roosevelt highlighted that this is an ideological struggle, that it's a fight for freedom and human rights against Nazi Germany. And so the United States should support those who are fighting against the Nazi um, menace. And again, what's the end state? Well, what he calls victory. Victory. More on that in a moment, what victory means. Well, what was Britain's answer to Lend-Lease? Well, Churchill gave a famous uh, speech about this. He said, what's the answer that he should give to Roosevelt? Again, he calls Roosevelt the great man, thrice chosen. Remember, in 1940, Roosevelt was re-elected third time as president, breaking the two-term tradition set by George Washington. 
So what, what is the answer that Britain should give? Well, here's the answer to President Roosevelt. Again, wonderful language. Again, you can go and listen to this wonderful language. You know, put your confidence in us. Give us your faith and blessing. And under providence, all will be well. And then again, some beautiful language here. Wonderful rhetoric. Again, when you hear it, it's, it's very stirring. I wish, I wish I could do that Churchillian voice. You know, uh, again, neither the sudden shock of battle, long-drawn trials of vigilance and exertion will wear us down. Again, this language was taken by President Bush, Bush 43, his speechwriters, and used in his speeches after September 11th. Again, wonderful language to, to use. And again, it ends with this. I just love it when I listen to this. It says, give us the tools and we will finish the job. Again, he doesn't say, give us the soldiers and we'll finish the job. Again, Churchill understands that in the United States, there's a strong isolationist impulse. He understands he can turn off American opinion. The United States doesn't want to be involved in a war where it has to send an American expeditionary force to put boots on the ground to fight in Europe. So again, as part of his communication plan or campaign in the United States, he highlights, you give us the weapons, the tools, and we'll do the fighting. Again, Churchill and Roosevelt are in sync here in trying to coordinate the message to the American people of the importance of the struggle, but also who's going to bear the main burden of fighting at this period of time. Again, a famous poster of the time, let us go forward together. Well, what's the German view of Lend-Lease? Well, from the Washington Embassy, this is what's going back. Uh, the Lend-Lease Act, what does it mean? Well, it's all inspired by Jewish confidence of the president. Again, this is the German foreign office. This isn't Hitler. Obviously, they know what Hitler wants to hear. And so the German foreign office, diplomatic service, is saying that this law of supporting Britain against Nazi Germany represents the Jewish worldview. Because of the Nazi ideologues, the war is being caused by a worldwide Jewish conspiracy. And so here the German Foreign Office is reinforcing the message that the Fuhrer wants to hear, that Germany's leader wants to hear. Uh, again, scary prospect when professional diplomats have become so politicized, so ideological, that they're not able to give assessments that are more in line with reality. Well, what are Hitler's options? Talked about Roosevelt's four options. Well, for Hitler, he basically had two options. He could follow a British first strategy, and that is focus his efforts in 1941, an air assault, continue an air assault on Britain, intensify the submarine campaign, the Battle of the Atlantic, again, a battle that Britain and the United States have to win, uh, move forces, down to the Middle East, through the Balkans, to attack the British Empire in the Middle East. One option that wasn't possible was a direct cross-channel attack, a D-Day, if you will, on Britain. Britain, by 1941, had rearmed from the defeats suffered in 1940. Britain was just too strong at that point, both in the air and on the ground. So Hitler and his generals have decided they can't do a cross-channel attack with any chance of success. And again, that's due in part to American support, helping to rearm Britain, 
so that Britain is strong in the home islands. Well, that's one option open to Hitler. What's the other option? Option two. You waiting? Well, attack Soviet Russia, of course. That's the other option. <laughs> now, we, we look at this, we know the history. We know how grisly the Eastern Front, how hideous it is, and the horrendous losses suffered by the Soviet peoples and by the Germans in the Second World War in the Eastern Front. But again, that history hasn't been written yet. To Hitler and his planners, when they look at these two options, they say, which one is more feasible? Which one is more executable? Which one is easier? This one is. To German planners and to Hitler, attacking the Soviet Union makes more sense than following a Britain first strategy. Now remember, Hitler has a quasi-alliance with Stalin, the Hitler-Stalin Pact of August 1939. So he's turning on a partner, a partner who has reliably supplied him with raw materials and food from 39 to 41. He's turning on someone he's been cooperating with and attacking the Soviet Union. Why would he do this? Well, part of it is the Nazi ideological agenda to gain hegemony in Europe, to destroy the Soviet state, and conquer large portions of the Soviet Union. And also, also, he believes that by destroying the Soviet military might, that Britain, Britain won't be able to have a partner to do ground fighting against Germany. So he sees, Hitler sees a window of opportunity to destroy the Soviet Union, because the United States is ramping up its armaments, getting stronger militarily day by day, there's a clock ticking in Hitler's mind. If he's going to defeat the Soviet Union, he has to do it now, before the United States fully arms. And in Hitler's mind, that's going to be 42 or 43. So he has a year or two window that's opened up to defeat the Soviet Union. So that's why he chooses option two, even though we know the outcome and how it ends up not working out the way Hitler wanted. Well, Churchill knew that this was coming, not only from his reading of history, because he understood Napoleon. Napoleon attacked Russia in 1812 when he couldn't invade Britain, uh, but also because of signals intelligence that is telling him about German troop deployments, movements of forces to the Eastern Front. Well, Churchill, uh, who stayed in contact with the Soviet ambassador in Britain, Maisky, whose diaries have just recently been published in English, uh, Churchill keeps warning Maisky, tell your master that Hitler is going to attack the Soviet Union soon. And you can see what Maisky's response is, that's Churchill's recent tick. Stalin, by the way, didn't want to hear this. Stalin and the Soviet leadership are thinking, why would Hitler attack us? We've been his best bud. We've given him everything he wants. Why would he attack us? This makes no sense, according to Stalin. It, why, he should try to finish Britain off first before he starts a second front against the Soviet Union. So Maisky asked Churchill, says, well, if this conflict does happen, you're ticked. What will be Britain's response to that? Again, look at this from the diary. Churchill reddened. Churchill's often seen as ruddy-faced, blood pressure going up, eyes bloodshot, cried out fury in his voice. Well, to crush Germany, 
He'll make an alliance with anyone, even the devil. Remember, Churchill was an ardent anti-communist throughout his, his, his life. But again, the priority is, priority is Hitler's a great danger. Hitler has to be defeated. And so he's going to find allies where he can find them, including in communist Russia. Well, on June 22, 1941, what Churchill had predicted happened. Hitler attacks the Soviet Union, achieves surprise for peoples of the Soviet Union. June 22, 1941 is the equivalent of December 7, 1941. Hitler carries out a masterful deception scheme that confuses Stalin and played to Stalin's own predilection, own view that Hitler wouldn't attack him. Well, it comes as a surprise, and initially the Germans achieve some remarkable successes. But right away, on the very first day of this war on the Eastern Front, Churchill gives a speech welcoming the Soviet Union as an ally. No diplomatic preparation, no need to reach out to Moscow and say, let's talk about this first. No, he makes a speech uh, uh, saying that Britain now will fight with the Soviet Union and that anyone that fights against Nazis will be Britain's ally. And again, Meisky responded um, in his diary, wrote down just how that the prime minister's broadcast on June 22nd, just how important it was in stirring the morale of the Soviet people as well, because Britain would be offering maximum aid to the USSR. And Churchill puts the case with the utmost clarity, and again with Churchill, implacability. I love that word, implacable. We don't use that word enough, do we? We should use that word, implacable. Okay. Well, initially, uh, the Germans do very well. In the first couple weeks, they destroy a lot of the Soviet Air Force. German forces sweep into the Soviet Union, capturing large numbers of prisoners, uh, which they then treat in the most inhumane, brutal way. Uh, uh, but they're already, within a few weeks, halfway to Moscow. Uh, it looks so good for them that the chief of the German general staff, Franz Holder, who also kept a diary, Thank goodness for diaries. We historians, we, we depend upon diaries because they give so much insight into what people were thinking at the time rather than, oh, after the war I wrote my memoirs. Uh, it gives you a good idea of what they were thinking. Well, anyway, Franz Holder put in his diary on the 3rd of July, said, hey, the war's basically over. In two weeks, we've done so much damage to the Soviet Union. Now it's just exploit. As far as our gasoline will take us, we can go as far as we want. Well, what do you do then? What are your choices? Well, one, you can march on Moscow. That's one choice. The other choice is, well, let's take over the Ukraine because that's breadbasket of the Soviet Union. Food of the Ukraine will be useful to Germany's war effort. Strike into the Donetsk uh, Basin industrial region. Go get oil in the Caucasus. That's another option. The Germans are so flush with victory, though, at this time, they decide not to choose. They decide to do both of these things. And this is one of the reasons why the Germans fail in 1941. They don't have a, a clear idea of what they want to go after. They're so um, caught up in victory fever that they think they can do it all. Well, that turns out to be a mistake. Uh, looking back on it, they should have put their main effort in going toward Moscow but they don't. Instead, their forces get spread out. And the further you go into the Soviet Union, again, geography, uh, the bigger the front becomes. Well, also, Soviet resistance hardens at this time. Stalin, initially shocked 
that his partner Hitler would turn on him, that his view that Hitler wouldn't attack the Soviet Union before beating Britain, now that's been demolished. Stalin knows he's in a knife fight and he's fighting for his life. He would have loved to be able to negotiate a deal with Hitler, to say to Hitler, you want Ukraine? You can have it. You want the Baltic states? You can have it. Just stop attacking me. But Hitler wants none of that. He doesn't want a negotiated end on the Eastern Front. He wants the destruction of the Soviet Union. That's what his aims are. So Stalin has been put on death ground. He has no option but to fight and to mobilize the resources of the Soviet Union against this invasion by Nazi Germany. There can be no negotiated end for him. He has to fight through to victory. Well, what happens is that the Germans find out that the Soviet Union has a lot more military potential than what they thought. When they attacked the Soviet Union, German intelligence thought that the Red Army was around 200 or so divisions of troops. What Holder records in his diary from the middle of August is, you know, we've come into battle with 200-some divisions and we've destroyed most of them, but it turns out we've now identified another 150 Soviet divisions. The Red Army is much larger than what we thought. You know, quite often we put the German general staff and German generals up on a pedestal and say, oh, they were masters of war. They were great generals when it comes to operations and the rest. That's a baloney. It's, it's amazing how many mistakes these professionals made. This is a great intelligence failure on the part of the Germans. Now, if Stalin was attacked and caught by surprise, this is a big surprise, too, for the Germans. It turns out that the Red Army is twice the size of what they anticipated. Can you imagine that? All of a sudden, your enemy is twice as strong as what you thought it would be. And now, because you've put them on death ground, they're fighting harder and harder the more you advance into the Soviet Union. Again, Holder re 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 puts in his diary, just a few weeks later after his first, uh, that entry that I showed you earlier, says, I, we've underestimated them. You never want to underestimate an enemy, right? Never do that. Well, just as Holder is writing in his diary, Churchill and Roosevelt meet in a summit in August of 1941 off the coast of Newfoundland. And here you see Churchill talking to General Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, Roosevelt talking to Marshall, see Churchill, and then behind him, uh, Admiral Betty Stark, the Chief of Naval Operations on the right, and um, there you see Admiral Ernest J. King, uh, one of our top admirals who would become the Chief of Naval Operations during uh, the war in 1942. By the way, uh, both of those admirals, again, are graduates of my Naval War College. <laughs> Notice it's my Naval War College. Okay. Well, actually, it's yours. You, you pay for it with your taxes. Okay. Uh, here they are meeting to discuss strategy, but also Roosevelt wants to talk about aims. What are the aims that the United States and Britain are fighting for? And part of, of what happens here is there's a church service that's held on the fantail of the battleship Prince of Wales that had brought over uh, the Prime Minister Churchill for his meeting with Roosevelt. Again, when you YouTube this and look at it, it's very, very moving. And at the time, it was very moving to those leaders 
Again, we tend to think of leaders as being rational calculators. You know, I put up four options, choose one. Well, here they are uh, during this church service singing hymns, and both Roosevelt and Churchill are on the verge of tears. They are so emotionally caught up in the moment. They know what the stakes are here. This is not just some rational game of move and counter move of interaction. They understand just how important the decisions that they make, how important they are uh, for the fate of millions of people. Well, what comes out of the uh, conference, Atlantic Conference, is the so-called Atlantic Charter. As you can see, there it is. It's the whole thing right there. Article 6 says, after the final destruction of the Nazi tyranny. Again, here the United States isn't even at war. But Roosevelt, what victory means for him is the destruction of the Nazi regime. Rolling back all the conquests that have been made by Germany and Japan in Europe and in Asia. He's laying out what the post-war world should look like that the United States can't live in a world where the Nazi regime survives. Regime change must occur. Same is true in Japan, that the military regime in Japan that has embarked on wars of conquest against China, they have to give up those conquests, and that Japan has to learn to live peacefully with its neighbors. So again, before Pearl Harbor, before the United States is in the war, we have laid out our vision of what we want to see the world look like after the war is over. Again, it's always important, right, that you sit down and you say, why are you fighting? What's at stake? What do you want to achieve? Well, this succinct statement uh, lays out what the United States wants to achieve in the war. Gets publicized right away. Again, notice the headline in the New York Times, Pledging Destruction of Nazi Tyranny. That's the goal. Also, the defense plant is going to cost over $3.5 billion. That's real money back then. That's a lot of money. The United States is gearing up, ramping up its resources for war. Well, what's the response of the American public to this? And I have some opinion polls taken after this Atlantic conference when Roosevelt has laid out what our aims are. So here's one question put to the American public. How would you vote today on the question of the United States entering the war now against Germany? What's the response? Enter the war, 21%. Stay out, no opinion. Okay, here's another question. Which of these two things do you think is more important, that this country keep out of war or that Germany be defeated even at the risk of our getting into war? Defeat Germany, 57%. Stay out, 38%. No opinion, 5%. Now, what do these opinion polls tell us? Well, first of all, what's most glaring is that 5% of the public is clueless. <laughs> I'm surprised it's that small. Oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> Please, if there's taping of this, erase that. <laughs> but what it shows is that the American public has, well, they... they, they want their cake and eat it too, right? Yeah, they don't want to fight Germany. They know the cost of fighting Germany. The United States had been in the First World War. 
We, we had 160,000 dead fighting Germany on the Western Front. Don't, don't want to have another war like that. And this war will be worse than the, second, than the first war. You know, when we went over there. So, uh, yeah, that sort of makes sense. We, we, we don't want to do that fighting. We don't want to bear that cost. But at the same time, defeat Germany? Yeah, the American public's clear. Nazi Germany is a threat, and they would like to see it defeated. They would like to see it defeated. But they want somebody else to defeat Nazi Germany. Right? Somebody else. And again, that's what Churchill and Roosevelt during the 1941 have been saying, that the United States is the arsenal of democracy, providing the support to be able to defeat uh, Nazi Germany. Now, 1941, a new age begins. In the aftermath of the meeting off of uh, Newfoundland, um, Churchill and Roosevelt have a big decision to make because a new age is coming about, and that is a nuclear age. When we think about the events of 1941, what do we think about? We think about Pearl Harbor. Americans think about Pearl Harbor. But something else happened before Pearl Harbor. Um, Britain and the United States had teams of scientists and engineers who were looking in the potential to develop nuclear weapons. And a committee of scientists and engineers in Britain worked up a study to say, is it feasible to develop nuclear weapons? And uh, it's the so-called Maud Committee. And this is what they come up with, that yes, it'll be costly to do, but a great weapon can be developed, a destructive effect, both material and moral, and that every effort, again, in the context of the war, because they're afraid Nazi Germany is pursuing nuclear weapons, produce bombs of this kind. If the United States and Britain make a big effort, by the end of 43, nuclear weapons can be achieved. Again, we know that it takes until the summer of 1945. But again, a crash program might well be able to develop nuclear weapons within two years, is what they think. Um, and even if the war ends before, again, they don't know how the war is going to turn out. But the side that has these weapons, uh, they're going to be in a strong position. So you, you want to acquire these weapons if you can. Again, this is the conclusions of the British report that is being done in the first half of 1941. Uh, and the so-called Maud report, well, what are their uh, conclusions? Here are the three conclusions. Uh, these nuclear weapons can have Decisive results, I've highlighted that. This weapon will be decisive if it's achieved. Uh, and again, highest priority, present collaboration with the US continued. Um, Roosevelt is briefed in a very important meeting on October 9th, 1941, by his scientific advisor, Dr. Vannevar Bush, about the potential for nuclear weapons. And it's at this meeting armed with studies that Bush's group has done, plus the Maud report, that Roosevelt says, let's go ahead with a program to explore the feasibility, research and development on these weapons. Not the go-ahead yet that comes in January 42. Not the go-ahead yet to build these weapons, but a crash program to explore the feasibility of it. And so Roosevelt writes to Winston Churchill on October 11th, 1941, Again, two days after he's given, this is a priority matter here. Again, we should explore this jointly together, this nuclear program. Churchill's response is, yep, 
Yep. Again, this is something going on in secret. Uh, the Nazis are not aware of what we're doing here. Turns out by the end of 41, Stalin is aware through his spies that we're pursuing this program. Uh, but nonetheless, nonetheless, uh, this is a high priority. The nuclear age is beginning in 1941. Imagine that, nuclear age in the sense of developing nuclear weapons. The first nuclear arms race was not the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. The first nuclear arms race was between Britain and the United States on one side and Nazi Germany on the other. Again, there's a great fear that if Britain and the United States can build these weapons, so can Hitler's Germany. Can you imagine a world in which Hitler's Germany got nuclear weapons first? What an ugly world that would have been. Well, the crisis of 1941 comes in the fall and winter of 1941. The Battle of Moscow. The Germans are driving toward Moscow. Looks like they're going to encircle Moscow. Uh, their forces get so close to taking the city. The Soviets, by the way, believe the city is going to fall. Most of government ministries have been evacuated from Moscow. Uh, anything that uh, they think is essential has been moved out. Uh, Stalin fears that Moscow will fall. A uh, heroic, titanic effort made by the Soviet peoples. Uh, here you see large numbers of laborers, primarily women, working to build ditches, tank traps, and the rest to stop the German forces as they race toward Moscow. General Winter comes, though, to the aid. Again, the German army, these are German army soldiers in this cold temperatures. The winter of 41 turns out to be an extremely cold winter. Uh, and German soldiers aren't prepared for it. Indeed, about only about a quarter of the German forces are ready for winter warfare. Again, this myth that the German generals are so brilliant. How do you embark on a war in the Soviet Union into Russia without having provided for winter campaign? Even if you win, your forces are going to be deployed into Russia for some extended period of time over winter. It really is remarkable that they did so little to prepare for this campaign. Large numbers of German soldiers become ill and also frostbite. Their weapons don't work properly. And the Soviets are bringing in fresh troops, troops coming from Siberia, from the Far East, to move for the defense of Moscow. Um, in the October Revolution Parade in November 1941, parading through Red Square, Stalin giving them a speech, sending them into battle against the Soviets. There's a photograph of Stalin giving speech. Red Army, better prepared for winter warfare, strikes the Germans and pushes the Germans back from Moscow. In fact, Germany came close to a major military disaster in December of 1941. Their army group center that had been driving toward Moscow was almost encircled and destroyed by the Red Army. It could have been a catastrophic uh, defeat. Well, how about Asia? The Soviets have turned back the Nazi thrust there. What's going on in Asia? Uh, John Gunter, one of the great journalist writers of the interwar period, best known today for his book, Death Be Not Proud, about the death of his son Johnny to cancer, um, wrote a book called Inside Asia. He had a whole series of books. And in this book, at the very beginning of the book, he says, everybody knows that Great Britain is the greatest Asiatic power. When I read that, I thought, 
well, he's right, but wow, that's stunning. I think of Britain being, you know, a bunch of islands off the coast of Europe. Uh, but when you look at the map of the world, you realize that, yeah, there's Britain and Great Dominion, Canada to the north. But in some ways, the center of gravity of the British Empire is around India and in the Indian Ocean. It's a great Indian Ocean littoral empire stretching from New Zealand through Australia to Hong Kong, Singapore, Malaya, India, down to South Africa. That the British Empire is, is that great Asian power, and it's being threatened by Japan. In 1938, Churchill wrote uh, articles, but one article in 38 about Japan. This is what he has to say. There's the Emperor Hirohito on his white horse taking the review of his troops that are going off to fight in China. Again, this island empire, meaning Japan, is gripped by this military despotism. Now, this is the Emperor Hirohito I remember. 1975, coming to the U.S. and meeting Mickey Mouse. Uh, it's hard to reconcile. How do you, how, how do you reconcile, you know, uh, that Hirohito with, with this Hirohito? By the way, we're told that you know, he got a Mickey Mouse watch while there uh, at, uh, at Disneyland, uh, that he's buried with that Mickey Mouse watch. It was a prized possession of his. Uh, well, anyway, Mickey Mouse triumphs. Okay, well, Japan. Uh, Japan has moved, as Churchill said, taken over by militarists bent on expansion and conquest. One of the best books written about this was by the New York Times journalist who was stationed in Japan, uh, government by assassination, by the New York Times journalist Yu Bias. What a name to have as a journalist. <laughs> well, anyway, this is a wonderful book, well worth reading today if you want to understand what's going on. Very good reporting, uh, you know, from the time. Well, again, here's American opinion polls. Uh, how do you deal with Japan? Well, we have to take a firmer line than what we've taken so far. And as you can see, there's a clear support among the American people. Roosevelt, in all of his decisions, as the leader of a democracy, has to take into account the views of the American people. Because the American people's views, of course, are going to be loudly expressed. Uh, we permit open, free debate. Well, uh, Roosevelt has to take this on board and says, we can take a stronger line toward Japan. Iconic photographs like this of a baby abandoned in the Shanghai railway station crying. Again, this is what American newsreels are showing about Japanese aggression in China. Well, what are those, that harder line? Well, here, here it is. From 1940 on, the United States is thinking, we're going to send a fleet, keep it deployed in Hawaiian waters at Pearl Harbor. Also, the United States is going to build up its navy to be able to take on both Japan and Germany, a two-ocean navy. General MacArthur is in the Philippines to build up the ability of the Philippine Islands to resist against the Japanese attack, and also economic restrictions to hurt the Japanese. Again, one of the great fears that Roosevelt has is that Japan will attack the Soviet Union while Hitler's attacking the Soviet Union. You don't want to let Japan gang up with Hitler on the Soviet Union. Stalin then can't move his troops to defend Moscow. You have to tie the Japanese down, hence the harder line is essential to negotiate with Japan from a position of strength. Um, in June of 1940, when France fell, the American fleet in the Pacific was on an exercise uh, out in Hawaiian waters. Roosevelt 
told the fleet commander, Admiral Richardson, that the fleet should remain at Pearl Harbor. Admiral James Richardson, he, he didn't like this. He wanted to move the fleet back, back to San Diego, because he said the readiness levels, the, the fleet could be kept in a better position to fight by being on the West Coast. But Roosevelt said no. And so um, Admiral Stark, the CNO, Chief of Naval Operations, wrote to Richardson and said, you ask me the question, why are you in Hawaiian uh, waters? Well, there's the answer. The president one thinks that your fleet will have a deterrent effect on the Japanese. Now, at the beginning of December 1941, again, they don't know how history is going to play out, Churchill wrote down and said, there's four outcomes of what's going on. One is that the U.S. comes into the war against Germany and Japan backs down and remains neutral. That's the option he prefers. Second, the U.S. comes into the war on the Allied side, Japan on Germany's side. That's the next best option. Both the U.S. and Japan stay out of the war. Churchill doesn't like that. But his worst nightmare by far is that the U.S. stays out of the war while Japan comes in and attacks the British Empire, that Japan bypasses the Philippines and goes after Singapore. This is his worst nightmare. And at the beginning of 1941, Churchill thinks that that's what's going to happen. Well, here's the Naval War College in Newport, Rhode Island. Looks pretty, doesn't it? Um, here's the gaming tables in Pringle Hall. Um, between the wars, a war between Japan and the United States was gamed out a number of times. And it would be gamed out on the floor, and you could see fleets are maneuvering there. Well, uh, how, how did the war plans look? How did we think the war might go? Well, generally, the scenario was, the big strategic scenario, is Japan launches an offensive, takes the Philippines, Marianas, Guam. Then it goes over to the defensive, creates a greater East Asia co-prosperity sphere. The United States then builds up its naval forces, marches across the Pacific, retakes the Philippines, fights a big battle, probably in the Marianas. All of this, by the way, actually happens. In June of 44, there's the great uh, naval battle of the Philippine Sea. So th this is more or less what happens. Uh, one problem is we like to say the enemy gets a vote. The war begins with Japan attacking our main base at Pearl Harbor and the fleet that is there. The mastermind of this attack is Admiral Yamamoto. Well, I find this really creepy. Uh, this is the program for the Army-Navy game of 1941, and that's the cover of it there. Again, 29 November 1941. Inside the program is a photograph of the battleship Arizona. Bear with me while I read the caption that is underneath that photograph. A bow-on view of the Arizona as she plows into a huge swell. It is significant that despite the claims of air enthusiasts, no battleship has yet been sunk by bombs. This is truly creepy. Within two weeks, of course, the Arizona is going to be sunk and destroyed by bombs and over a thousand aboard killed. This is really tempting the fates when you do things like this. Scary, scary. Photographs of the Japanese carrier force closing on the Hawaiian Islands, their strike, the beginning of the attack, the explosion of the magazine by a bomb on the Arizona, destroying the Arizona, its wreck. 
what it looks like today. Well, the headlines the next day, Japan wars in the U.S. December 8th, 1941, Roosevelt asked for a declaration of war, speech that lasts under 10 minutes. Here's the first draft. Roosevelt takes his own hand to the speech provided for him. And notice the first line, the memorable words. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in world history. Not moving, is it? Very vanilla. You have to make a double chunky plus fudge. And so Roosevelt, in his own hand, puts in those dashes instead of the comma and puts in a day, you know, will live in infamy. Infamy. Again, that's what we remember, the Pearl Harbor attack, an infamous attack. Again, Roosevelt there putting in his own words what he wants to say, making that speech so memorable. Well, a few days later, Adolf Hitler goes before the Reichstag on December 11, 1941, uh, to declare war on the United States. This is one of the great questions. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? Well, look at his speech. And I, I tell audiences over and over again, Hitler's speeches must be read. We don't read them. They are so revealing. It's amazing. He, he speaks and tells you what he's really thinking and his emotions, the anger and hatred that drives him. He tells us in his speech before the Reichstag that the Japanese attack fills all of us, the German people and all decent people, decent people in the world, with profound satisfaction because they've been negotiating with this false man, meaning Roosevelt, for years and now they've decided to strike him. And we know what Roosevelt stands for, who stands behind him. I, I, no secrets here. It's the worldwide Jewish conspiracy, and this is what's moving Roosevelt. He's strengthened by this conspiracy and those around him. Diabolical meanness of this movement, and Roosevelt reaches out. He's part of it. And this begins what? Roosevelt's constant effort to create conflicts. Hitler's the man of peace. Roosevelt is the one that's trying to cause wars around the world. All these things could be peacefully solved were it not for Roosevelt. And of course, that speech leads to the final solution. Uh, this is a very moving photograph here of Auschwitz and the rail lines. Because Hitler not only is declaring war in the U.S., but at this time he decides to put in place the final solution. You know, we think of the Second World War and we say that, oh, chemical weapons weren't used. Well, they were indeed used. They were used against people who couldn't defend themselves. Industrialized murder on a large scale in camps, extermination camps like Auschwitz. Well, Churchill on December 26 came over to the United States and gave a speech on December 26, the day after Christmas, to a joint session of Congress, um, showing that the United States and Britain are now together. Uh, his mother, of course, was an American, Jenny Jerome, born in Brooklyn. And he adds in his own handwriting there, I wish my mother could be here to see this, uh, what's going on. And then he tells a famous joke that if his father had been American and his mother British rather than the other way around, he would have gotten here to the Congress on his own. <laughs> well, in this speech, 
Churchill says the United States has drawn the sword of freedom and cast away the scabbard. Um, 1941 is an important year because the United States in that year realized that its security was caught up with events going on around the world. That it couldn't duck that responsibility, couldn't run away from it, be it the threat of Germany getting nuclear weapons or the Japanese surprise attack on Pearl Harbor, that world order and world peace depended upon an active role being played by the United States. This is a great turning point, 1941. And for the last 75 years, the United States has tried to uphold the cause of freedom around the world and the cause of peace. Um, 1941 then stands out, stands out because the United States took on a larger role in the world than what it had before, taking on responsibilities that we all as the American people are very much aware of, the cost of those responsibilities, and yet just how vital those responsibilities are. Thank you. We have time for questions, and there are two lines here. And if you would please, you know, uh, so that more people can be engaged, please keep your questions uh, to be short questions. Uh, yes, starting over here. Hi, how you doing? Fine, how are you? First of all, I have to say, you gave one of the most magnificent speeches we've ever heard. Uh, following on the, uh, less, the axiom that if people don't learn the lessons of history, they were forced to relive it. And recalling that shortly before, relatively shortly before Pearl Harbor, Congress passed the Selective Service Act only by one vote, allowing us to at least start to prepare. And recalling that Hitler had violated so many international uh, agreements before where the West, including America, just remained passive. Uh, is there any lesson to be learned from that failure to proceed earlier when Hitler would have been much, much less strong. Yes, uh, the 1930s is one of these tragic tales that uh, you can see almost by slow motion uh, a, a great wreck occurring. The United States, while having the world's largest economy, had military forces that were, were rather small uh, in relation to um, its strength in the world, its economic strength in the world. The United States was an economic superpower before Pearl Harbor, but not a military superpower. And so uh, it would have been prudent for the United States to have spent more on defense, because at this period of time, when the danger becomes overriding and almost overwhelming, the United States has to, at the very last moment, start rearming. And uh, we're not able to bring our full strength to bear until 1944 with the invasion of Normandy, of course, and the Battle of the Philippine Sea that I mentioned in the Pacific. So uh, it takes a while for this potential to be built up, to be decisive. If the U.S. had invested more in the interwar period, prepared earlier, maybe that war would have been shorter. How, how about over here? John, I want to second the motion. It was a remarkable presentation. Thank you. Thank you. 
my question deals with Lend-Lease. You, you showed what the American opinion was about getting into the war, but our first engagement is a Lend-Lease. What was the American opinion on our Lend-Lease uh, efforts? Uh, it, it is actually positive, again, because the message is a clear one, that we are supporting others to do the fighting. And the American people understand the danger of the world, uh, especially after the fall of France. And again, I want to highlight that, that that was a big upset at the time. I mean, we look back at it and we can explain why France was defeated so quickly. But at the time, that came as a shock. It was a big shock. And so that's what spurs, you know, back to the previous question, is what spurs American rearmament is the fall of France. It's really only in June 1940 that the American people see with France defeated that they have to move quickly to rearm. So it's a, a very much a last minute thing. So there's support to rearm. There is support to give aid to others. It's just the American people aren't there to want to send an expeditionary force overseas. Uh, Roosevelt liked to say that uh, American mothers were willing to dress their, their boys in Navy uh, suits, uh, but not in Army suits. Uh, and so, uh, again, and we see this down to today, which is this whole debate about when do we put boots on the ground? When do we put American soldiers in harm's way on the ground? And so uh, th this, is, this is something that's an enduring question that we face which is when do you commit American soldiers right into the fight on the ground? Because that's where you take heavy casualties. Um, you mentioned about the final solution. And uh, Hitler, on his retreatment, uh, he started to butcher 12,000 a day. And uh, Henry Morgenthau and uh, Rabbi Stephen Wise repeatedly told uh, Roosevelt to do something about to bombard. He was able to do it. He, he did bombard the, the oil fields of Romania. So it would, never, would have never cost uh, uh, American lives. Uh, uh, so why, this is why, why uh, he didn't do anything? And the second question, nowadays, with the worsening of the Jewish, of the, of the anti-Semitism worldwide, especially in the Western Europe, don't you think this is the litmus test of the World War III? Uh, on the two questions, the first one, uh, this is a, a, a horrible choice that our leaders had to face of whether to try to disrupt railway lines leading to places like Auschwitz, the extermination camps. And it was discussed, thought about, and the conclusion was that it, was, um, it, it would detract from the ability to win the war more quickly. That was what the thinking was. Better to get the war over with that those sorties to bomb rail lines would not have as great an impact as, say, bombing the Ruhr or the oil fields uh, in Romania. And so that was the choice that they were faced by. And they said, Churchill and Roosevelt said, let's continue the air campaign against what they thought were more important targets for winning quickly. At the same time, though, they also made clear that they were going to hold accountable those people who committed crimes like this. Hence, we had the war crimes trials after the war. That is no solace, of course, for the people that were being transported uh, to the extermination camps. But nonetheless, it is really remarkable when you think about it, how much effort the Nazis put in to the extermination of peoples. All the rail transport tied up by this 
You know, when you read the memoirs of German generals or Albert Speer, the armament czar, he's always talking about, oh, we didn't have enough railways to move this coal from here. Or the generals, oh, if I had more rail transport, I could have gotten this division in time to stem the Soviet offensive or to do something against the allies in Normandy. Uh, the German regime is creating, manufacturing a massive transport shortage to pursue one of its most important aims, as you saw from the Hitler speech, which is the extermination of peoples in Europe uh, and, and the Jews. So uh, um, it's amazing how committed the Nazi regime is to this. With regard to today, I, I, I concur with you that anti-Semitism on the rise is certainly has to be one of those warning indicators of a more dangerous world. Thank you. Over here. If you were writing an Atlanta charter for the United States today, what would it read like? Um, I am a, uh, an employee of the US government, <laughs> and so anything, I, whenever I get a question about today, I'm supposed to put in a disclaimer that says, that, hey, these are my own opinions. And of course, it's my I'd own like opinions. Your I mean, you all know that, yeah. Um, we're going into a turbulent, dangerous time, I believe. Um, there's a number of forces at work that are at play that I think is making the world more dangerous. Uh, that nuclear legacy of 1941, who gets nuclear weapons, uh, the danger of either terrorists or states. I mean, we look at North Korea today, and my goodness, they have nuclear weapons. What a scary prospect that they, in effect, are not only taking this 21-year-old University of Virginia student and holding him a prisoner you know, from some minor crime, but when you think of it, they have nuclear weapons, and they're holding us in Japan and other South Korea hostage to nuclear weapons. That is truly scary indeed. Um, I would like to see the United States do its utmost to try to prevent regimes like that from getting nuclear weapons. Uh, I understand fully, though, what the cost would likely be to, to do that. So part of my Atlantic Charter would be to make sure that no terrorist group or rogue states get nuclear weapons. That would be, you know, number nine on my list. But otherwise, the things that are up there actually, you know, uh, which is that we want to promote as best we can, not, always, not by force necessarily, but promote as best we can a world that is more tolerant, more open, um, a world where more freedoms flourish, because I think we are all more secure. And that, again, becomes another uh, previous question, another test, uh, a litmus test, if you will, of the world that we want to want to live in. I hope that's good enough. Yes. In the spring of 1945, the British and American military forces were advancing rapidly eastward um, through Germany, and suddenly they stopped, and allowing the Soviet forces to uh, advance westward and take over uh, much more of, ter of the territory of Poland and Germany than would seem to have been necessary. Now, why was this? Um, one of the remarkable things of the Second World War is how much resistance the Nazi regime is able to garner and um, uh, the fighting of the German people and armed forces down to the bitter end. It's truly remarkable when you think that, it's pretty clear that they're going to lose the war, and yet they fight, inflicting heavy casualties on everybody. Um, 
for the Soviet Red Army to take Berlin in April and May 1945, they suffer 30,000. Got that number? Three zero, then three more zeros. Fatalities, not casualties, dead, taking Berlin. Meanwhile, American, British, Canadian, French forces coming into Germany are also taking heavy casualties. It's often thought that the Germans were only fighting against the, the East and not against the West. No, there was bitter resistance in the West as well. And so as a consequence of that, uh, as both sides are coming in, the Soviets were closer to Berlin and, and big chunks of territory in Germany than we were. And so it was decided by Eisenhower that we should draw a clear boundary line, and that turns out to be the Elba River, because you know rivers make good dividing lines. We go up to that, Soviets go to that. Now Churchill, in the spring of 45, recognized that it would be good if Anglo-American Canadian armies could, could, take, could take Berlin before the Soviets. So he pushed for it. And FDR, in one of his last messages to Churchill, says, we have to wait on the military situation, but I'm not opposed to that if it looks like we can do it. But Eisenhower, the field commander, is given great discretion on this, comes to the conclusion that he has to worry about resistance to the south, he has to worry about resistance to the north, that a drive toward Berlin might make his forces vulnerable, and by the way, the Soviets are even closer. Uh, so that, that's how the decision w w was made. So it wasn't military necessity completely. It was also a tacit uh, agreement with Stalin to, uh, for political reasons to let them... Uh, yeah, and, and, and remember, we still have a war going on against Japan. And when you look at the Tehran Conference of 1943 and the Yalta Conference of February 45, one of the key American goals is to end the war in Europe as fast as possible, get Eisenhower's forces out to MacArthur, and get the Red Army to attack the Japanese in Manchuria. Stalin at Tehran and again at Yalta, it was seen as being a big concession, said that 90 days after the war in Europe is over, I will attack Japan. Stalin had a non-aggression pact with Japan of April 1941. That's why he was able to move troops from Siberia over to Moscow. So what Stalin is saying is, I will make your job of defeating Japan easier. So there's very much a, a we're, we're, by the way, we're glad that the Red Army is going to attack Japan because we know that those Japanese troops in the home islands will put up bitter resistance against an invasion. And they, again, we, don't, we haven't tested the nuclear weapons yet, so we don't know whether that's going to work or not. Yeah. I, I viewed your um, talk in part as a definition of the characteristics or qualities of great leadership as exhibited by Winston Churchill and uh, President Roosevelt. Uh, I would like to know, in your opinion, uh, personal opinion, what American presidents um, exhibited those qualities, and in reference to the current candidates for the presidency, what earmarks of those qualities do you see in any of the candidates? Right. Um, first and foremost, um, somebody intellectually engaged, uh, moral character, of course, upstanding. Uh, someone who's brave, willing to take decisions. All of those are three big characteristics. Uh, someone that surrounds them with, with talented people. 
I mean, what you see in Roosevelt and Churchill have surrounded themselves with talented people who are able to give assessments and feel free enough that, uh, that the bosses are going to beat them down when they bring some unpalatable news. Again, one thing that's remarkable about Churchill is that Churchill says to his chiefs, tell me, I want to keep fighting against Nazi Germany. Tell me, what are the odds? And they say, not good, unless you get the U.S. on your side. I know you don't want to hear that, Prime Minister. You just want to hear, yeah, we can win. No, we're not going to give you the rah-rah win speech. We're going to tell you how difficult this is going to be. And it's contingent upon the U.S. Um, same thing with uh, Roosevelt. Roosevelt reaching out and having leaders like Marshall and Stark and King and, and for that matter, Vannevar Bush, his top scientist advisor. I mean, surrounded by really talented people. So again, another mark of a good leader is being surrounded by talented people and listening to them, having them lay out options. Uh, any, anyway, uh, those are some of the things. But obviously, moral character uh, uh, and, and honesty uh, in their own mind about what, you know, what can be achieved uh, in, in the world. Uh, again, as someone who's a very thoughtful individual, but bravery is important too, courage. I mean, when I think of Churchill, the first attribute I think of is courage. Not only physical courage, but moral courage. Willing to take unpopular stands. And in Roosevelt's case, trying to educate people. Uh, Roosevelt liked to said, uh, say, I'm the educator-in-chief, not the commander-in-chief. That in a democracy, great leaders have to educate the people. And that that is hard to do. As a teacher, I know. <laughs> what you're saying uh, sort of correlates with team of rivals. Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Over here. Uh, if <coughs> if uh, uh, Hitler had not attacked Russia, what would have been the war scenario? Uh, could you repeat that? If Hitler had not attacked Russia, what would have been the war scenario? Uh, Hitler uh, would have continued his offensive against Britain. This was what was being argued by his Navy Admiral, Admiral Raider, uh, also uh, his foreign minister, uh, Ribbentrop, all wanted to maintain the alliance with the Soviet Union to continue the war against uh, Britain. But it would all take place at sea, air campaign, there was no hope of a cross-channel attack or a short war. So the war would have become protracted uh, with the Soviet Union sitting on the sidelines. And um, so that, that's probably what the outcome would have been. At some point, though, Hitler is so driven to attack the Soviet Union that that's likely to happen. And again, he, he has this clock in his mind that's saying, I've got to do this before America gets too strong. When Japan attacks the United States, he says, I've been given an extra year because Japan's going to tie down the Americans in the Pacific. They're not going to be able to do a Germany first strategy. They're not going to be able to do plan dog. They're going to have to put forces in the Pacific. So that means the U.S. won't be able to do decisive action for another year. So uh, for Hitler, one reason why he's supporting Japan by declaring war on the United States is he sees Japan as giving him a big favor by getting the gift of time, another year to defeat the Soviet Union. It, it's hard to imagine some of these alternative outcomes. Yeah, over Thank here. you so much for focusing on this very critical year that ultimately affected the outcome so very much of the Second World War. Um, I was a little surprised, given your naval background, in referring to the first uh, event, critical event, 
that of Hitler's not invading England in that year without mentioning the fact that it was probably because of the Royal Navy rather than any great forces that England might have. And of course, Churchill was very proud of saying that we have a navy, end quote. Uh, the second event that I think uh, affected the outcome, as you pointed out, okay, it was that Hitler chose the middle or latter part of June to begin his assault, which was really a couple of months later than he should have. And the third was Hitler's uh, deciding to declare war after the seventh. Yes, the question is, how important were these relative to any other events, such as the atomic uh, decision? Yes, uh, the Royal Navy clearly plays a key role. That Britain was stronger than Germany at sea means that Germany can't carry out an invasion unless they get air superiority. Hence, the air battle is so important because if Germany can get air superiority, it can compensate for its inferiority at sea. But you're right, the, the Royal Navy is the bedrock of, of, uh, of Britain's ability to stand uh, up to Germany. The German attack on June 22nd, uh, 1941, uh, it's fascinating, but Napoleon invaded Russia on June 22nd, 1812, the exact same day. Uh, Hitler could have invaded uh, uh, a little bit earlier in June uh, if he had wanted to but he gets involved in a campaign in the Balkans, destroying Yugoslavia and also attacking Greece, coming to the aid of his ally Mussolini, whose campaign in the Balkans against Greece has uh, uh, been defeated. Um, so uh, his attack on the Soviet Union is delayed somewhat by the Balkans. But the main factor, though, is just logistics. The German army, we think of tanks and trucks and all the rest, but the Germans have tens of thousands of horses and what you have to do to feed horses is you have to wait until crops have gotten far enough along because you're moving forward with all of these horses. So there's a logistic reason. Also, in Eastern Europe, the road network is so bad. And uh, what happens is you have spring rains, everything becomes mud, and you can't maneuver off the roads, and there are not enough roads. So uh, you have to wait till the ground hardens. So June 22nd, uh, somewhere at the end, second half of June, is really the earliest you can invade the Soviet Union, as it turn, tur turns out. Um, and the decision for war by Hitler, again, when you look at it, he, he, he already thinks that the U.S. has declared war on him. In fact, in his speech, he says that Roosevelt in 1937 has effectively declared war on us with his famous quarantine speech. He said already he's opposed to us and made it clear that Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany are the enemies. So uh, he, he already sees the U.S. as an enemy. Thank you. You started at uh, 1941. Are you going to have a lecture from 1941 to 1945? Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> uh, he, he, as we come up with these critical anniversaries, uh, of the Second World War of 75 years ago, it, it, it is useful to reflect back on those times. So I, I agree. Either me or somebody else should be. No, it has to be you. Oh. But, then, <laughs> but anyway, my, sec, uh, my question really that I thought of while you were talking about 
It's really in 1945 or so. Why did Roosevelt and uh, uh, Churchill agree with Stalin to deport everybody from uh, Czechoslovakia, Germany, well, Austria and, and Prussia and all this to, un uh, to USSR? Because even the prisoners of war that were treated, as you well know, Stalin's rule was the last bullet was for himself, right? Mm -hmm. Yet. All of them that couldn't run away were deported. It was the most traumatic part of the war that has been ended. Mm -hmm. And I was part of that. Mm -hmm. And the, the third one is just a little comment, and I'm going to say it very quickly. There is, when there is an emotion, there's always a second. Well, my third one, if my daughter traveling 200 miles brought me to you, that's the third one. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Um, at, at the end of the Second World War, there is um, um, large population transfers that are taking place at that time. I mean, the ger uh, German city of Königsberg, uh, where the great German philosopher Immanuel Kant uh, was at the University of Königsberg, that's now the Kaliningrad Oblast. So there has been changes there, population has shifted, uh, of Germans moving, Poles, all the peoples there. Uh, a very good study of, the, of this region is done by the Yale historian uh, Timothy Snyder in his book called The Bloodlands. And so I, I recommend that uh, uh, to you all as being a, a very, very good study of uh, Eastern Europe, of Russia and Germany, and the peoples in between. So I, I recommend that reading. It's, a, it's an excellent account. Thank you. Thank you so much, John Maurer. And uh, we're all already in talks about his next talk um, <laughs> next fall, winter. Um, just a quick announcement, just to remind you that Jeremy Black, the uh, Alan Luxemburg and the FPRI Institute are bringing him next. He is another unbelievable speaker. Seats, uh, seats are still left, so think about getting a ticket for that wonderful program, April 2nd. Another wonderful Saturday morning to wake up early and come to one of our programs. Thank you all for being with us.